0: Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam turlin and for this week's conversation, four people from the Common Good Collective talked to Sierra Hinton about her article, It's Time We Abolish the Fourth Estate. They talk about the importance of the stories we tell, who should be telling these stories, and the relationship of storytellers to power. Sierra is Scalawag's executive director and publisher, and Greg Jarrell opens the conversation.
1: Thanks for joining us today.
0: Of course,
2: thanks for having me.
1: I wanted to just start our conversation by uh, grabbing this sentence from the middle of your, your piece about abolishing the fourth estate that I thought really captured the essence of it really well for me as a, as a way of talking about the power of journalism and stories within local communities. So you've written journalism does not just keep a record, it covers power and upholds that power by speaking it into being. The notion that just by speaking, we're creating a sense of power really was part of what was so powerful about the piece. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I think as a Black person, um, a Black queer person in particular, I generally think about that from the other side, which is there are very few media outlets that are um, amplifying the voices of people like me. Therefore, in many ways, we're rendered kind of powerless because we don't have folks who are speaking on our behalf, who are amplifying our voices, who are getting us the news and information that we need. Um, and so the you know, focus on disproportionately the lives of, of white people in this country by uh, journalism, by news, by media, really reinforces the status quo and reinforces the existing power structures.
1: And one of the ways you're going to spell that out is that journalists aren't just like a disinterested third party, which is kind of the, the popular notion that we've had, right? The journalist is supposed yeah. to stand in the middle and sort of negotiate all these various interests without having interest themselves. And so you're really dispelling that and, and recognizing the importance that the community's people come from influences the way that they're speaking into a new situation. Yeah. I mean, this is in a lot of ways, a journalist upholds the ancient role of a storyteller. And bringing to light the stories that are important within a community.
2: Not that I never thought about it that way, but when you say it that way, it's kind of ironic when I think about the communities and people that have traditionally passed information um, and news through storytelling and orally. It's generally been communities of color, uh, people of color um, that have done that work. So, Yeah, it's kind of like an ironic or interesting uh, dichotomy there that journalists are overwhelmingly um, not folks from communities and cultures that have generally been the storytellers um, and those passing down oral histories. That's so true. And I, I wanted to chat a little bit with you about... Um, the idea of movement journalism. So you just did a really awesome talk with um, Haymarket Books, you and Inama Changa, and some other really incredible journalists pointing to a new style of journalism or a newer style of journalism that's kind of coming up. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about that and in the context of community and in the context of a structure of belonging, highlight what it is about movement journalism that speaks specifically to that, to community and community building? You know, movement journalism can be defined many ways and we really try not to, uh, and by we, I mean, me and and my peers, particularly at an organization called Press One, but really just folks who have been um I think over the past couple of years really looking to drive this work and this different type of journalism, movement journalism. We define it as journalism in service of justice and liberation. but again, like that's our definition um, and we welcome other definitions of the work. We also did not like start movement journalism. This is a long history that We're really highlighting uh, and with the support of movement organizers, community organizers trying to bring to the forefront in the journalism industry. That is because of really what you sort of just named there, Courtney, around movement journalism's long tradition within communities of color and the really, I think, collective nature of that work. For us, all of this was actually started by an organization based in Atlanta called Project South, and they are a organization that does community organizing across the South and also works in conjunction with other community organizations to center people of color and our collective liberation for all people. And so in that way, this type of journalism was actually born out of movement, and it is sort of moved into the hands of journalists who have a movement and community organizing backgrounds, really trying to keep that spirit um, at the center of the the work that we do, um, and understanding that stories should come from within community uh, by people who are living and having experiences um, about the things that are being reported on. We like must stop the extractive nature of journalism. Wanting to make sure that we are covering um, power of people um, and not institutions, not having that be uh, the only power that we cover as it currently stands in journalism. Generally, we're looking at institutions, people, power the privilege, folks who have long had access, like we've already said. And so, yeah, just really understanding that it really is like a community and people who should be deciding what is news, what information is needed, who is driving the narrative, who the narrative belongs to, and letting that be what guides our journalism um, and having it be responsive in that way versus sort of an overlord that decides what journalism is and what news is and not really having an understanding of what's happening on the ground or what's happening in community.
3: So with independent journalism and a focus on local news and local, you know, building up like the local news culture. Can you talk a little bit about like that tension between operating inside of a system and operating outside of a system? And maybe from your vantage point at Scallywag, where you have built this like new possibility, you've kind of, you're in it, you're you're in the middle of building this future that you believe in. So I guess it's kind of a two-part question. It's like, what do you see as, as an independent outsider doing this very different kind of journalism? How do you see that like impacting the larger systems of journalism and what does that look like? And then secondly, can you like peel back the veil of like, what is the embodiment of your culture? What does it, what does it feel like? What does it look like inside of this new possibility? And how does that, why does that matter? And what, what help us like get inside that?
2: I think to the first part, we are very fortunate or we came along at a, at a good time. I think not initially, but eventually uh, we came along (laughs) at a good time where it feels like folks who uh, maybe work in more mainstream or traditional journalism are, some of them are ready for a shift in how things have been done. And so here Scalawag sort of stands as a model for how to do things differently and how to be more inclusive of folks who have Uh, traditionally been ignored by mainstream media. And so in that way, we've been, I think, very fortunate to have folks want to talk to us and listen to us and hear about the work that we do and how we do it. It doesn't necessarily make it any easier. And that. I mean, it has everything and nothing to do with journalism at the same time. And by that, I mean, it's the same as anyone who is trying to do something different in a system that is designed to make people do everyone do the same thing. That's not unique to journalism. That's just literally how our society is designed and and set up. And so in that way, it's (laughs) it's exciting, but it's also super hard because you're like, okay, like I want to do something different, but we still have to raise money like everyone else. We still have to do so many things that require you to move and be a certain way within the system to access those things. At the same time, not wanting to move and be a certain way because that doesn't align to, you know, our values and our beliefs and, and the future that we're fighting for. In that way, it's like a really hard balance. For us, we really just try to stay and remain as values-driven as possible, really keep an eye toward our vision at all times um, and be aligned on that vision. Those are the things that when you talk about like lifting the veil and what it looks like inside this new possibility, those are not like new concepts for folks. We in organizations, especially nonprofits, talk all the time about our values and our vision or our mission. But I think for a lot of folks, those things are sort of nebulous or something that you like look at or think about once a year in a team retreat. But for us, like those are our guiding principles. um, And that is what we are looking toward all the time in our work. And we try to live out our values and embody those things and, and everything that we do and not just have it be something that's like on a poster somewhere in a wall in our office or on some random Google Doc that nobody ever opens. I don't say that flippantly. That's like really hard work to live your values. You know, I'm a big Brene Brown fan and she always talks about courage um, and, and courage really coming at the times when it is hardest to live your values, Courage is not when it's easy, it's when it's hard. And that way, I don't want folks to feel like this is easy work and that we think that, oh, everybody should just do this. That's like not true at all. Um, it's really hard work, but in order to get to this more liberated and inclusive future that we wholeheartedly believe in, we know that's the work that, that must be done. I think that that is sort of the simple way to think about what looks different within our organization and with our culture than what I've seen in other organizations.
0: You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast. This is a poem from Audre Lorde. It's called A Litany for Survival. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone for those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice who love in doorways coming and going in the hours between dawns looking inward and outward at once before and after seeking a now that can breed futures like bread in our children's mouths so their dreams will not reflect the death of ours for those of us who were imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads learning to be afraid with our mother's milk. For by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hope to silence us, for all of us. This instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestions. And when our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak Remembering we were never meant to survive. As we return, our producer, Joey Taylor, asks Sierra a question.
1: So, you talked a lot about at the very end there re- revenue models. You helped us to imagine what a little bit of what a consumer based revenue could look like. Um, but I know the sources of, of news that I typically consume are national level there if I'm if I'm being honest, they're they're very polarized. It's dramatic and you know pull, pulls the audience in and it has incentives that are serving other interests besides kind of the local neighborhood, the local communities. And so I'm wondering if you could help me imagine how do we get to a revenue model for local independent journalists that's consumer based. It doesn't have other incentives kind of baked into it. Does that make any sense?
2: Yes, it yeah. does make sense, yeah. and I am sorry to say I do not have an answer for that. <laughs> I, that that is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. I have a few hypotheses. So the first is starting to think of journalism as more of a service than a good. I think up to this point, historically, journalism and and news has been thought of as a good that you purchased, especially because it was predominantly a print product. And so it really was something that you were purchasing. But with the transition to digital, um, and also as the industry begins to really wake up to the fact that for hundreds of years, whole communities have been ignored, except for by publications that were specifically created to serve their community, but those publications were also started by people from within those communities, so they have also historically been under-resourced. So as the more resourced parts of journalism start to, and people within journalism start to recognize, like, oh, we too should be trying to serve our whole community and cannot ignore like whole groups of people that live within our community. Yes, beginning to think of, of journalism as a service because, you know, those same folks have been who have been ignored, have been ignored by the whole system um, in our whole country and are economically disadvantaged and have been kept away from wealth. We've also, as journalists in the industry, has caused great harm to those communities. And so there's a really big push right now around media reparations. Just the thought that we would start with a model that would dare to ask people to pay for journalism is sort of bizarre to me. Like, why would you ask somebody to pay for something after you've ignored them for hundreds of years and don't have their trust and don't really understand their communities? So if we think about it as a service, And you see this with the rise of nonprofit news, then we can look to uh, foundations, major donors, um, and other institutions with access to wealth, wealth that was probably built on the backs of Black and brown people. So again, these same communities that have been disadvantaged and kept away, then they can help fund this news and information. And over time, it won't be quick, we can start to then earn trust, build trust, and help communities of color in particular and other economically disadvantaged communities understand the value and the importance of news and information and begin to ask them to make that investment, but only after we've done the work. I think another sort of along the lines of media reparations and the way that we think about it at Scalawag. We center communities of color, other oppressed communities, queer folks in our um, work, but we also have a large part of our audience that is really like middle-class, upper middle-class white folks who want a different type of narrative and a different type of news and journalism than they traditionally been reading because they understand that there's like large parts (laughs) of the community that haven't been uh, represented in their news. When I think about like our membership program and our donors, like to me, those are the folks who should be giving to help support our organization. Again, a form of media reparations. Um, So asking you all to pay for the news and information and journalism that we provide so that we can keep it free and open and accessible to everybody is another way that I've thought about that. Beyond that, if we wanted to think about it from the reverse, so not the revenue side, but the expenses side, when folks think about like local news, everyone thinks about sort of the traditional newsroom model, but that might not be the best model for every community. So for some communities, something as simple and small as a newsletter could be what they need. And that actually doesn't take a ton of money to fund. So I think it's also like really beginning to understand like, what is the actual need within the community? And what is the model that best serves that having that be the focus versus like, I want to be the next New York Times, everyone is going to be the, the next New York Times and everyone, every community doesn't need a New York Times. Is there a model where your expenses are lower, and it's more affordable, and it's easier to fund than maybe building and scaling a large newsroom?
1: So this is a really powerful vision for how local news can work. And I've got two things that I just wanted to follow up on. For one, you you use the phrase, the collective nature of journalism. I I just want you to unpack that a little bit. As a culture, we've been brought up to think of uh, individual achievement and individual stories. Right. And uh, that's led us down a lot of um, troubling paths. So help us, help us understand this vision, the collective nature of journalism.
2: Yeah, oh my gosh, individualism, man. It is going to kill us. It is going to kill us. It really is. Um, it is just not the way forward in my opinion. And so when I think about the collective nature of news, how are we coming together as a community and making a decision about what information we need, what news is important to us, There's been like recently within the journalism industry and media in general, a big push towards events. And of course, a lot of folks immediately think about events from like a revenue generating perspective or at an engagement perspective, which both very valid and important parts of events. But I think like thinking about events from the simplest form of them, which is like, how are we bringing people together? The newsrooms that have done this most successfully within their events, they have a responsive structure built in that helps them to better understand the news and information needs of of their community. How can we bring people together virtually virtually? in person when it's safe, to really start to unpack and better understand what's happening around them, um, what's happening on the ground, what's happening within their communities. And then collectively, how can we make a decision about what responsive journalism looks like in our community? Also thinking about, you know, what does... Networking and shared services, shared fundraising efforts, shared revenue generating efforts look like within the industry. What does it look like to support other? Organizations to help platform people. Like, that's something that we do often at Scalawag and something that we really believe in. Like, if we hear about another media organization in the South that is launching, especially if they are led by a person of color, like, how can we help them? Because we understand how difficult it is to grow your audience, grow your platform, generate revenue. How can we help them get their name out there, get their news and information out there, build their audience? So, just like, Like being way more expansive about what it means to grow journalism and news, especially in response to the ways that local journalism in particular has been decimated over the past two or three decades. Being expansive in our thinking about community, but also being expansive in how um, we build up the media ecosystem.
1: I would encourage to those who are out there listening as a reader and a former subscriber who needs to renew to Scalawag. This is really an exemplary model of journalism building from within communities, spreading outwards, rather than you know the, the corporate model that we've gotten. You've mentioned you know media reparations. One of the famous stories in North Carolina. So I grew up in Raleigh, uh, which is where I think you are. I grew up in Fuquay Varina, actually. I live in Charlotte. Yeah, I'm in Durham. Okay. So one of the primary examples of this was the way that that Josephus Daniels, the publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer, was one of the primary drivers behind the Wilmington massacre of 1898, right? And utilizing the press to create a narrative. The Charlotte Observer was a a part of that as well. And so again, that's that power from the top down, and and you're creating something really different that, that has produced just some amazing results. From this reader anyway quickly before we let you go give us the pitch more than you already have especially the name because not everybody's going to know what scalawag is so tell us the name give us the vision of what you're doing with this publication?
2: On the name front, I'll, I'll call back to our co-founders a little bit. So Scalawag was actually, um, and I think this also just speaks to the power of transformation and moving closer and closer to a vision that points to, towards liberation. Scalawag was actually founded by three white folks, two of them from the South. One of them in particular came from Winston-Salem and had family in Appalachia and just more rural parts of the South and just having this really deep confusion about their identification with white power structures, especially as Poorer folks who uh, and not having that like class consciousness and class solidarity, and so naming the publication Scalawag, thinking about the I guess white Southern dissenters during the Civil War, complicated history there. But you know, I guess at a high level, wanted to be doing something something different um, and saw their role differently during that time. So that is is where the name originated, but. I think to their credit and the credit of the founding team, having an understanding that as a part of liberation, you know, it's really the folks who are most marginalized, who are most oppressed, who should be leading the work and really wanting to uh, transfer that leadership and that power, you know, to me as a Black Southern queer woman. Really, the pitch is that I am, like I said, a Black Southern queer woman from rural North Carolina, very rural <laughs> North Carolina. I grew up on a cow farm. My The way I define equity is if the most marginalized folks have what they need to live and to thrive, then everybody else will also have what they need to live and thrive. Supporting media that leads with those sorts of values and that type of understanding and knowing that is the way forward not just in media but just overall if we can really get to that definition of equity then um, i think that the world will be in a much better place and so really wanting folks to think about their investments and think about the media that they're reading and supporting in that way how do we begin to shift power by supporting and investing in the leadership of Black-led, queer-led media, and led by Indigenous folks, these communities that have and people that have often been left out.
0: Thanks for listening. You can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. Be sure to check out everyone's bios in the show notes. Also, Join us on April 13th for the Common Good Collective's Abundant Community Conversation between John McKnight, Peter Block, and Dr. Deborah Putney. Learn about a place that dramatically improved the health of the community through building social capital. Using Rochester's Community-Owned Health Improvement Plan as an example, Dr. Deborah Putney will speak about how the best practices there can apply to life in the pandemic. Check the show notes for the registration link. The Common Good Podcast is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.